All right, so we'll continue our study in Acts here. We've made it up to chapter 21. Uh, last time we looked at uh, Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, he went to Ephesus. He made some disciples there and he taught and spread the gospel there for three years. Uh, there was a riot that forced him out of there and onto the next place. But uh, he made his rounds throughout the other churches and encouraged them. And he was able to encourage the Ephesian elders one more time before he headed back to Jerusalem. Um, and the Holy Spirit told him everywhere he went that chains awaited him in Jerusalem. But in Acts 20:24, 20, he said, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So even though Paul knew that he would end up in chains if he went back to Jerusalem, he was still compelled to go, and he wasn't worried about it. So before we get in the study, I'll go ahead and open up in prayer one more time. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord God. I pray that you would uh, just speak to our hearts now, Lord. I pray that you'd speak through me, that it wouldn't be my words that are spoken, but your words spoken through me, Jesus. And I pray that... Uh, You'd help us to grow tonight in our knowledge of you, our love for you, and our faith in you. In your name I pray. Amen. So in Acts 21, it starts off with, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over the Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And so it seems like Paul's trying to get there in time for the day of Pentecost uh, celebration there. And there's probably a lot of people that he hasn't seen in years, and this is like the only time they'll meet together in one place like that. And they're almost going in a straight line towards Jerusalem here. And they pass up Cyprus, and that's where Paul and Barnabas first started their first missionary journey. So it must have been kind of uh, iconic to Paul. Maybe he wanted to stop there and visit that church too, but he either didn't have time or else the ship's uh, schedule didn't allow him to do that. And so... Uh, even We know for us, even now, it's hard for us to travel somewhere and get there by a certain deadline. So you have to imagine how much difficult it would have been back then. You know, those ships, there's so many things that can delay a ship like that. And so it's kind of an interesting detail to kind of picture there. But once they get to Tyre and they meet up with some Christians, they stay for a week because the ship had to unload its cargo. And I'm sure they loaded up with more cargo. So they had that layover there. And they were able to fellowship with those other believers. And again... The people that care about Paul tell him not to go to Jerusalem if he's going to be arrested when he gets there. So in verse 5 now it says, When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. So that's just a beautiful picture there. Uh, I don't know if Paul really knew these people beforehand. Maybe he met them in Jerusalem or when his missionary journeys, but it sounds like he didn't really know them beforehand or didn't know them that well. And he only spent one week with them, but they all followed them to the shorelines uh, to see him off, and they prayed with them. And it's just a beautiful picture of the fellowship we have in Christ. 
And that's the cool thing about meeting other Christians. Uh, when you come across people who have the same Father in Heaven that you do, you have so much in common with them. And uh, at the Bible College when I was there, it was really cool to see these different people groups kind of becoming friends that wouldn't normally be friends. I uh, noticed especially there's a surfer dude who became a good friend with a computer guy. And they're kind of like on opposite ends of the social networks usually. But uh, if they had Christ in common, then that's a lot to have in common. And uh, it can be, it's different when you're parting with Christians because you know you're going to see them again in heaven. And uh, you know that God might bring your paths to cross again before then too. So they see him off at the shore and they pray with him. It just makes a really good picture in your head. In verse 6 it goes on. When he had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So this is that same Philip back in chapters 6 and 8 in Acts that we looked at. Uh, in chapter 6, he was chosen as one of the seven men full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was chosen to serve the tables there. In chapter 8, he's the one who the Spirit led through that desert road. And he came across that Ethiopian man in the chariot. And it was like the perfect uh, divine appointment God set up for him. And so he was able to witness to him and baptize him. And then the Spirit carried him away to Azotus. And he preached the gospel on foot from there until he came to uh, Caesarea here, where he's still here today. And now we can see why he stayed in Caesarea, because apparently he met his wife there, it looks like. And so uh, that's the ministry God led him to. On to verse 10 now, it says, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when he had heard these things, we both, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. And so although Paul's been warned many times as he's been traveling back to Jerusalem, uh, it seems that because he's getting closer to Jerusalem, the warning is getting stronger it's uh, like the, it becomes more real the closer he gets. And this time the prophet actually uses like a visual illustration. He takes Paul's belt and actually ties up his own hands and feet and says, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. And uh, this time uh, it's so strong that even Luke is telling him not to go and his travel companions and the locals and so this time it's interesting that the Apostle Luke himself is saying, oh, don't go to Jerusalem. We care about you. We don't want to see you get arrested. But even in all this, I still think that it's God's will for Paul to go. And I think uh, Paul would have known if it wasn't God's will. He's a guy that's pretty sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. Uh, God kept Paul from going to certain places on his other journeys before. They just had a closed door, but it's not happening this time, so I think that's another reason it might be God's will. And so, why does the Spirit keep warning Paul if it's still God's will for him to go? 
And uh, the prophecy that this man said here says that the Jews would arrest him and that they would deliver him to the Gentiles. And it sounds very similar to what happened to Jesus. The Jews arrested him and they had their mock trial and then they gave him to the Gentiles to crucify him. So he's going to go through a little bit of uh, the tribulations that Jesus went through. And in Acts uh, chapter 9, verse 15 through 16, when the Lord was sending a different Ananias to heal Paul of his blindness after the Damascus Road incident, he told Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul was going to get a taste of what Christ had to go through, and he was okay with it. And let's look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but it's a good reminder. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. So Paul tells the Philippians here, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death." if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul really did suffer for Christ, and uh, he welcomed it because he wanted to know Christ. That's kind of his emphasis there in verse uh, 10. He said, all that is so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And so uh, just like we talked about it before, there's fellowship and suffering. We fellowship with Christ when we go through what he went through. And uh, he says here that he lost everything, and he wasn't really exaggerating. In his other epistles, he uh, asked the other Christian brothers and sisters to bring him his coat and his papers, because he didn't even have a coat. So he really did lose everything for Christ. But he didn't care, because he counted it as rubbish that he might gain Christ. And so we see that God's going to have a purpose in what Paul's going to go through in Jerusalem by being arrested. And the Lord told Ananias that Paul would preach to kings and uh, this arrest is going to give him that opportunity. He's going to end up before the throne of Caesar, I believe, and uh, other high officials here. And sorry to skip ahead and ruin the surprise. I should have given you guys a spoiler alert there. But uh, Another thing, though, is that uh, I think God's warning Paul so that he has a choice to make the sacrifice to God. Just like he urges believers to do in Romans 12, 1 through 2. So if you want to turn there, that's not too far from our place in Acts. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So I think that what Paul is doing here by going to Jerusalem, uh, he's being a living sacrifice. He knows what's awaiting him there. He knows what he's walking into. And why be a sacrifice? Because it's our reasonable service. And so um, God has given us eternal life 
And so it's very reasonable for us to surrender to him this short life that we have here on earth. And he's a good father who doesn't let anything happen to us that isn't first filtered through his loving hands. So uh, Paul's own travel companions are pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem because uh, they don't want him to be arrested and go through these trials, but we know that it's, for the, it's the will of God. And uh, this verse here that says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, it reminds me of what David said in the Old Testament when uh, he had to make that sacrifice to stop that plague or that angel that was going through and killing people. And uh, he stopped at that certain threshing floor and wanted to buy it from the man. He said, well, just take it for free. But David said, I will not offer to the Lord, or I will not sacrifice to the Lord something that costs me nothing. And so it just makes me think of that, you know, that uh, just the sacrifice is a heavy word. It doesn't, it's not something to be taken lightly, really. But Paul's going to give himself as a living sacrifice to Jesus wherever he sends him. So on to verse 13 now. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. So these Christian brothers saw that they weren't going to move Paul, so they prayed that God's will would be done. And uh, even though Paul's heart was breaking at the pleading of his brothers, he was still going to Jerusalem because he was willing to die for Christ. And I have to ask myself, am I really willing to die for Jesus? And apparently there are days when the answer is no, because sometimes I don't die to myself enough to spend time with him in his word and in prayer. I get so busy and caught up that I don't even do that. So apparently I'm not always saying, yes, I'm willing to die for Christ. But uh, it's something I need to do. In verse 15 it says, and after those days we picked and uh, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought us with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Uh, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So this is what Paul does when he gets back from the mission trip. He always shares the testimony of the things God did for him on those trips. And uh, this part, you know, they, it looks like they had to carry on this whole part on foot here. There's no more, no more uh, coast between uh, Caesarea and Jerusalem, really. So even after... Uh, that pleading with him to stay and uh, him saying he's going anyway, you know, it must have been a little, seemed like a really long walk or maybe a really short walk, I don't know. But it's kind of interesting. So he tells them all the things that God did through this mission trip. In verse 20 it says, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to, that, to the custom. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. And so they were saying, uh, there are myriads of Jews here in Jerusalem, 
And I looked up that word myriad, and I think it either meant 10,000 people or else a large number of people. Like we say, that weighs a ton, and we just mean it weighs a lot. So they were saying there's so many Jews here in Jerusalem, and they're zealous for the law, but they have this problem with what they've heard you were doing. And uh, it kind of frustrated me to read this because they already dealt with this years ago in Acts chapter 15. They had that Jerusalem council and they all met together and they agreed that uh, the new believers should abstain from polluted things, things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. So they already had this meeting. It was pretty much for the same reason. But the... People haven't really changed. They're still having a problem with this uh, legalism. So uh, James was even at that meeting, and that's whose house they're staying at now, it sounds like. But I can't really blame them, though, because, you know, they must have just heard these things, that all these things that God did through this mission trip, and it must have made them excited, you know, to want to see change in their home of Jerusalem there. And so I think their hearts are in the right place here. So verse 23, they say, Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And so uh, it sounds like they're really worried about the Christian Jews, not so much the Christian Gentiles here. And they tell Paul to go through this religious ritual with these young Jewish men to pacify the Jewish believers who have a problem with Paul. And Paul kind of talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. So if you guys want to turn there, it's not too far from Acts either. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. So Paul tells the Corinthians here, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may partake of it with you. And so uh, Paul says here that he strives to reach people where they are, uh, where they're at, to share the gospel with them. And it's a true concept. Uh, missionaries are more effective when they adapt themselves to the culture rather than trying to come to a culture and change them to match their culture, like, like the American culture. And it's awesome to see when there is a tribe like in Africa that's worshiping God without any instruments and they're all jumping up and down. And it's cool to see uh, these people in these churches in China where instead of just the pastor praying, the whole congregation all prays at once. And uh, it's cool to see people worshiping God in the, their own culture. It seems more sincere that way to me. But uh, it's okay to adapt to the culture as long as you're not compromising morally. 
And so don't try to go reach people at raves by doing drugs with them. You know, I'm starting to see a lot of young Christians who encourage each other to cuss because they think they're being more real with the secular world than that they'll be respected for that. And it's kind of sad to see, you know, Jesus hung out with the prostitutes and the fishermen and the tax collectors, but he wasn't, he sure wasn't swearing like a sailor with the fishermen and he wasn't taking money from people like the tax collectors and he wasn't indulging with the prostitutes. Instead, he showed them himself the way, the truth, and the life, and that he gives access to the Father. So the things that the world has to offer is a generic ripoff of the truth that God wants us to experience. So we don't need to meet people in that sense. We don't need to lower ourselves morally, but we need to meet them culturally. And uh, it's like a it is interesting, you know, you compare the fruits of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh in uh, Galatians there. And they almost seem like opposites there. It's kind of like they are a ripoff of the true thing. And I talked, I told the kids in Sunday school about that. And uh, I asked them, have you ever had like an off-brand cookie that just tasted terrible? And they all had experienced that. They said, yeah, it was so gross. And I said, but you really like, if you, they said they had a fake Oreo. I'm like, yeah, but that Oreo tastes really, the real Oreo tastes really good after you tasted that generic one. They're like, yeah. And that's what it's like with the things of the world. They're just a generic ripoff. They're not really worth it. And uh, I had another story about this subject. Me and a friend were witnessing to a skater once, and he said that he didn't want Jesus because it would make his life boring. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but that's what he got, was getting at. But look what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 7 through 11. In John 10, 7, it says, uh, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And, uh, you know, that's all a sheep ever really wants, isn't it? They want to go in and out and eat their grass and be protected. And so that kind of shows you that God gives us uh, what we really need. He gives us those things that are good for us. In verse 10 it goes on, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. And so, uh, just like he's a good shepherd and he gives the sheep the things they want to need, that's what God does for us. There's a big blessing in following Christ. And uh, in verse 10a there it said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And uh, Jesus, uh, oh, I'm sorry, these people who are deceived into thinking that they'll get more out of life if God just leaves them alone. Uh, this is what they have waiting for them. The devil, devil will make all kinds of promises to people, but in the end, all he can really do is kill, steal, and destroy. And they may think that they're having fun, but sin comes with consequences. And on the end part of that verse, uh, it says, I have come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. And so it's sad when people say that, that they don't want Jesus because it's going to 
drag down their life and make it boring when Jesus says that I didn't just come that you may have life, but that you may have it abundantly. It's like so much more than what you even think you can get out of life. Uh, so they don't want uh, these people who, uh, they don't want to let go of the things of the world that are weighing them down. And it's like a hot air balloon. Uh, it's as if they get in a hot air balloon and they're saying, I don't want to let go of these bags of sand. They're pretty cool. But then you tell them, well, that's the whole point of a hot air balloon is to let go of the sandbags so that the balloon can go in the air and you can experience that fun ride. And it's really ridiculous if they want to hold on to the bags of sand and they'll never leave the ground. And that's what it's like here. You know, if you don't, uh, if you don't, you won't truly experience life until you leave the things of the world behind and let Christ raise you up. And so if you put, we talked about that fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5. Uh, if you put them on a scale, you know, you know which one's going to really have carry the weight. It's going to be that fruit of the spirit. That's what's really valuable. And so, sorry for that detour to get back on track. Uh, Paul's goal in uh, going through this ritual here is to unite the Jews and the Gentiles in Christ through the gospel by meeting people where they're at. So in verse 26 it says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this whole place. For they had previously seen Tropimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So the plan's going well until the Jews from Asia arrive. And remember that while Paul was in Ephesus those three years, it said that all of Asia had heard the gospel. So there were enough people traveling through that all of Asia heard uh, about Jesus Christ. And uh, their accusations were pretty exaggerated. If Paul was against the law, then why would he be helping these young men fulfill their Nazarite vows? And they only assumed that he brought a Gentile into the temple. They didn't know that he brought four Jewish men in. And they drug Paul out, and immediately the doors were shut. And it, to me, it's kind of symbolic that they were trying to shut people off from God. And uh, God wasn't in that temple anymore. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn. And just like we read, Jesus said that he's the door now, and he gives access to the Father. But uh, these Jews seem to be trying to keep the Gentiles from God. It's a sad thing. In verse 31, it goes on. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And so they raise this uproar and the commander comes down to break up the mob and he finds him beating Paul. And they weren't going to bother to have a trial or anything. They just wanted to beat Paul to death. 
that was their intent with that. In verse 33, it goes on. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. So here's the fulfilling of the prophecy. The chains are now on Paul, hand and foot. And he's asking, it sounds like he's not asking Paul who he was, but he's asking the crowd. In verse 34, it goes on. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For this multitude of the people followed after crying out, Away with him! Uh, so this mob's a really violent one. They're kind of out of control here. And it looks like the commander wants to take Paul in uh, to protective custody until he figures out what's going on. Because the crowd was telling him two different or several different things and he couldn't really tell what was the whole truth there. In verse 37 it says, Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who was time, uh, some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to this people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So Paul catches the commander off guard here by speaking to him in Greek. And uh, the commander's presumptions that Paul was this Egyptian were shown wrong here. And most people would probably want to get away from this whole city that's angry at them and go into the barracks. But Paul couldn't pass up this opportunity to share the gospel, even though he's just been beaten by them. You know, he probably has bruises and bleeding all over, but he still wants to share the gospel with them before he goes into the barracks. And so Paul talked to the commander, sounding peaceful and civilized, so he gets permission to talk to the crowd. And it seems like every time Paul gets ready to speak to a crowd, he like motions with his hands, like I guess he's telling them to be quiet or something but I guess he's just maybe that's just the way he talked as he used his hands a lot but this time you know as the crowd silencing they must have heard a little bit of the rattle of the chains you know it's kind of a good picture to picture there and he starts speaking to them in Hebrew and we'll find out later that the sounds like the commander here doesn't know Hebrew so he can't tell what uh, Paul is telling the crowd but in verse uh, chapter 22 now it says brethren and fathers Hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in Hebrew, they kept all the more silent. So it shows you why he spoke in Hebrew. It had more meaning to them. Again, this is him uh, meeting them where they're at and coming down to them culturally here. Uh, in verse 3 he goes on, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were, were uh, there to Jerusalem 
to be punished. So Paul tells them his credentials here. He's kind of giving them his resume. He's saying he's a Jew. He was raised in Jerusalem. He was taught under Gamaliel. And he was a well-respected guy there. He was zealous for God. Even, he even wanted to kill the Christians. And he got these warrants to chase them down when they were in other cities. And so Paul was more zealous than the people in this crowd even. In verse 6 he goes on with his testimony. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So this is kind of like a Twilight Zone episode. Here, uh, Paul's uh, telling the crowd that he was standing exactly where they are. He wanted to arrest Christians just as he's arrested and in chains now. And he wanted to kill the Christians just as they were trying to kill him before the commander showed up. And so what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus applies directly to this crowd. Uh, They're persecuting God when they persecute one of his children. In verse 9 it goes on, And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now... Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so uh, verse 14 showed what God wanted for Saul. It said, the God, uh, he's chosen you that you may know his will, that you may see the just one, and that you hear the voice of his mouth. So basically, God wanted Paul to experience him he, because he loves him. He's being that door that's giving access to uh, the Creator. And Paul's telling his testimony in such a way that he's pleading with the crowd, saying to them exactly what Ananias said to him. He's saying, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So Paul's being kind of subtle with the way he does this because he's sharing his own testimony. This is what happened to him. But it applies so much to this crowd he's talking to. Let's see here. Where are we at? Who typed up these notes? 22 verse. All right. So in verse 23, no, verse 17. So it says, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. 
And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So Paul's point there was that, uh, of course they're going to accept me, I'm just like them. In verse 21 it says, Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. So this is where Paul loses the crowd. And it's almost like he's telling them that he wanted to tell them these things years and years and years ago when he first got saved. But God knew they wouldn't receive it. And it's still true to this very moment. They still aren't receiving it. And uh, they were okay with it until he got to the part where he says that God sent him to the Gentiles. Then the crowd becomes overcome with jealousy and hatred. You know, that's kind of what started this whole thing is they didn't like that Paul loved the Gentiles. They'd probably get along with him if it wasn't for that maybe, but this just causes the crowd to go in an uproar. In verse 23, it says, Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. So this crowd is just mad and they're tearing their clothes and throwing dust in the air. But I kind of have to laugh at uh, thinking this uh, through the picture that the commander sees here, you know, from his perspective. Because he sees the crowd go silent and he hears Paul talk in Hebrew. And, you know, you kind of picture him hearing like Paul say, blah, 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 blah. And the commander is probably looking at his uh, wrist sundial being like, come on, how am I going to talk for her? And all of a sudden this crowd goes mad and starts tearing their clothes and throwing dust in the air. And the commander doesn't know what's going on. So he's like, all right, I'm done playing these games. We're going to try a different way to figure out what's going on. They're going to try to whip Paul into talking. So it's kind of a funny picture to think there. In verse 25 it says, And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained my citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Let's see. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. So Paul isn't scourged after all. All these soldiers were frightened when they heard that Paul was a Roman. And they could uh, get in really big trouble for whipping a Roman citizen without a trial. And the commander was even afraid for having put chains on him, you know. It shows you there that it's like if they weren't even supposed to whip him, I mean, if they weren't even supposed to put chains on him, they definitely shouldn't have whipped him. So uh, even though Paul and the commander were both citizens of Rome, I think a natural-born citizen kind of was still held higher than someone who paid to be a citizen. So even though Paul was beat up by the mob and imprisoned, God's still watching out for him. He's not allowing him to be whipped here, which is, must be a nice break for Paul. In verse 30 it says, The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear, and brought Paul down and set him before them. 
So the commander decides to have a hearing with Paul and the accusers. They're finally going to try to do it the lawful way here. The mob tried to beat him to death. Uh, This guy tried to arrest him and whip him without a trial. So they're finally having their trial. In verse 1 it says of chapter 23, we'll go on a little further here. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? So Paul truthfully said, all he said was a simple statement, I'm in good conscience before God. And the priest has him punched in the mouth. And uh, it was not lawful for the priest to do that because according to Jewish law, Paul should have been innocent until proven guilty. But uh, it reminds you of what happened to Jesus, though. It was the same exact scenario. Jesus was on trial and he said the truth and he got struck in the mouth. And so he's again suffering with Christ here. And he told the high priest uh, that he was being hypocritical like a tomb that was painted white to look happy and clean, but it contains death and decay. So Paul really yelled at the priest there, back, back at the priest there. On to verse 4 it says, And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so Paul's almost apologizing for what he said. He doesn't totally apologize. But uh, even though what he said was true, he was showing that he was submitting to the Old Testament law in order to meet the Jews where they were at to share the gospel with them. So we see Paul doing this over and over again here. And uh, it's kind of interesting. The one commentary said that Paul should have recognized that that guy was the high priest. So maybe when he said this little apology, he was being sarcastic. But uh, some people think Paul had bad eyesight, and it says in verse, the first verse there that he looked earnestly at the council, so maybe he couldn't see exactly who was the priest. But um, he had said that, and then he kind of apologized for it. So in verse 4 it says, And those who stood by said, Do you revile... Or I'm sorry, we already read that part. In verse 6 it says, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' uh, party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel is spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So I don't really know why Paul said this, he knew what he was doing by starting this big fight among them. And uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says that he must have realized he wasn't going to see justice in this trial based on how the first five minutes of it went. And, um, you know, it sounds like there's kind of an awkward silence after he did his fake apology. 
And that's when he notices that there's Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he throws this grenade in the middle of the crowd practically by saying that he's a Pharisee and he's being judged because of the resurrection. Which isn't a lie because it's all about the gospel here. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And they weren't accepting it and that's why they hate him. And uh, he caused that division in them. And as they're arguing, it sounds like they're actually, like, literally pulling Paul on each side. You know, like you see in the movies, you know, there's a crowd on each side pulling him. And the commander was literally afraid that they would pull Paul to pieces. So he had to grab him into protective custody again. And uh, the Pharisees made a good point in what they said. They said, we might be fighting against God in what they were doing. And uh, that's what Jesus pulled uh, that's what Jesus told Paul on the road to Damascus. He said, Paul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And so it's use useless to fight against God because we aren't going to win. We're just going to hurt ourselves more. And how often do we find ourselves fighting against God or at least questioning God? Because I know I've had those moments. And if you turn to Isaiah chapter 45... Verse 5 to 10, we're going to look at Isaiah 45, 5 to 10. God's uh, talking to Isaiah, giving him a message to share with uh, Israel. And he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I am the Lord, I the Lord do all these things. Rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I the Lord have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the pot shards strive with the pot shards of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall the handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? And so the first five verses shows God's power and his wisdom and that he's in control. And verse 8 talks about uh, his ability to bring righteousness and salvation. And so he's kind of giving his resume there and his uh, credentials. And then he says in verse 9, he says, Woe to him who strives with his maker... Let the pot shards strive with the pot shards of the earth. And so God's saying, it's as if he's the potter and we're a broken piece of a pot, so we can't win, so it's useless to fight against him. And he says, let the pot shards strive with the pot shards of the earth. He's being sarcastic there. He's saying, if, you're gonna, if you want to fight someone, why don't you fight another broken piece of a pot because you have a better chance of winning. It'll be more of a fair fight that way. And in the ending of verse 9, he says, Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? And so it's kind of a funny picture thing to picture here. A potter working at his wheel, and you hear the clay say, Whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Back off, man. Because it's uncomfortable to be pressed and stretched and molded uh, like clay. But we need to trust the potter. He knows what he's doing and he has good purposes for all the pain and struggles and trials. 
And the clay can't become that valuable, beautiful piece of pottery without the crafting and shaping of the potter. So don't be like the Pharisees who resist God, but be like Paul who welcomes trials because he knows it's for a purpose. And in verse 11 it says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So God gives Paul these words of comfort here. Paul has this promise to look forward to and to hold on to because through all the trials and near-death experiences he's going to come across, he can say, I know that I'm going to be all right because God's still going to get me to Rome. So he's going to have a couple of different trials in these next couple chapters here, but uh, he's not going to be worrying because he knows that God's going to get him to Rome. And we can take comfort too knowing that God will preserve us until it's time for us to go home. So that's the end of the study for now. Well, we'll go ahead and pray and have more time of worship here. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for all the lessons we can get from it, Lord God, and all the applications we can make to our own lives, Lord. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to fully realize, Lord, the salvation you've given us to help us to fully know you, Lord Jesus, uh, even if it means going through suffering and trial, Lord God, if that'll bring us closer to you. Lord, then bring it on. And uh, I also pray, Lord God, that you'd help us to uh, not to worry, but to hold on to your promises, just as Paul's doing here, Lord. And I pray that you'd help us not to question you, Lord, or fight against you, Lord Jesus, but that you'd help us to have that faith, Lord, that you know what you're doing, you're taking care of us, Lord. And uh, please do give us those visions, Lord, of, our, of the future plans you have for us to get that we can hold on to, Lord, and be encouraged by I just pray for these believers here tonight, Lord, that you just encourage us and uh, strengthen us for this upcoming week and help us to keep our eyes on you and uh, help us to make wise use of the time you've given us. In your name I pray, amen.